Welcome ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and prefer not to disclose, back to the Undressing Underground Podcast. The intro explains what this is, and I am Rob Marvin. Stop talking behind me. Um, and I am here with Sarah Century. And uh, when did we? So I guess what we're doing is we're talking to different artists we know that are queer or people of color or just women i guess like anybody who is most likely to be poorly affected by a trump presidency that are artists and uh just sort of talking about like their plans and their feelings about like how they proceed in this era um I almost exclusively talk to uh, queer artists and I kind of tried to make it be as across the board as far as mediums go that I possibly could. So we have like, you know, singer of hardcore band slash comic book critic slash noise artist slash et cetera, et cetera. Nice. Yeah. I, I'll, so far, all I have is a comic book artist, uh, illustrator, but I'm going to try and reach out still to some like, I'm going to try to reach out to a local, like, feminist graffiti cl- collective out here in Philly and see if I can get a hold of them or someone from them and maybe reach out to, like, I don't know, phone critics. If anybody's listening to this that wants to talk to either of us, they can feel free to reach out. We'd love to talk to you. Um, yeah, really like talking. My girlfriend's and- waving my face because she's a person of color. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what? I said she's ready to go. Yeah. Like, there's an interview subject right there. Yeah. Well, I mean, also, we have you right here. I mean, I, did you talk about your own feelings in any of the stuff you did? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess real quick, Sarah Century, as a queer artist, how are you? Or I guess I saw the other day you have feelings about queer versus lesbian. But... um. If you want to explain, yeah. yeah. Do you want to explain that real quick, and then explain how you feel about all this and what you're doing besides this? Okay. Yes, um, that's a lot of talking, but yeah, I can do it. Um, so, yeah, I identify as lesbian, but I also identify as queer, and I think that both those words are really important. They're not the same thing, so you can't automatically assume that if you meet a lesbian, that that person is also going to identify as queer. Um, I identify as both because I'm more of a queer activist uh, than I am like a lesbian activist. I believe definitely in lesbians having their own space in LGBTQIA, but I also don't think that we, there's like just kind of this big separatist thing going on right now <laughs> with like a lot of, you know, after Ellen is like taken over by people who are just like, you know, drop the T from LGBT and shit like that. And Oof. so, like, I think it's super important that whenever I say lesbian that I'm also saying, but I'm queer. Uh, I'm not going to, like, fuck anybody over. <laughs> and, like, I don't, I'm not, my activism isn't just for lesbians, you know, like, it never has been. And so that's kind of where I draw that line and, like, what I think is important. So, obviously, whenever I'm talking to people in these interviews, um, I just absolutely want to make sure that I'm trying to talk to as many different people as I possibly can, because I understand 
how sometimes uh, even in something that you would think is really diverse, there's still a lot of conservative and bullshit attitudes towards other people, um, which is just like, that's my own personal feelings. And that's why I wanted to interview as many different people as possible because, you know, it, there's not a queer person or a queer perspective. Uh, and I also don't believe that there's a lesbian perspective either. So, you know, to me, it's important just to talk to all of these different people. And uh, besides that, what I'm up to lately is just trying to do a bunch of protest films and comic books and stuff like that, because uh, I think, you know, from what I've gotten out of all of the interviews, all of the subjects that I talk to are... <laughs> very scared and very brave you know so like you have to me that's like the queer legacy in a lot of ways is, is that we have this sustained sense of grief and we have a sustained sense of resistance um so the people who i've talked to i just think like so many of them are incredibly worried as we all absolutely should be but just some of the really beautiful and hopeful things i've heard from them makes me understand kind of more about why it is so important to me to identify as queer because um, it just puts me in this larger movement, I guess. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that. Cause obviously I don't know everything and I still fuck all these things up. Um, <laughs> but so the protest films and comics and stuff you're doing, they're like specifically like angry, like they're you're like, you're actually taking like a confrontational approach to all this in your art. I think so. Uh, I think it's always been confrontational with me. Uh, I feel like everything I've done has been either just deeply introspective or incredibly confrontational. I have like two settings pretty much. <laughs> uh, so um, I am definitely, uh, you know, I'm an Aries. I'm like down to fight with pretty much everybody. So like, I'm definitely down to like continue the resistance in any way I can. But lately there's definitely been to me, uh, a lot of resistance towards gay people a lot, you know, everywhere you're seeing like terrible shit. And then you have like, you know, gay people saying stuff like, you know, that they don't want to have like trans people in their movement and things like that. And to me, that's just like, what in the fuck are you guys doing? <laughs> like, yeah. you can't do that right now or ever, really. But like, <laughs> what the fuck matter with you? You know, like, we're all fucked right now. <laughs> like, yeah. You have to be that way. Um, and I think most people aren't, you know, I think that most people who identify as queer certainly aren't trying to like kick people out of LGBTQIA. Um, so yeah, I don't know. To me doing like protest films, I just want to like make a big point of the fact that like I am queer and that I want to represent queer subjects and that that's different than whenever straight guys make movies about lesbians, <laughs> you know, like. It's just a different thing. Like, I feel like there's no representation for it because, like, the only lesbians who even get to be filmmakers for the most part are absolutely, like, cis, white, you know, typical uh, pro-marriage, you know, like, kind of conservative lesbians. So, to me, it's like those tend to be the focus. So, I would love to take the focus off of them if possible <laughs> or even just, like, make a little bit of room in that focus for other people that would be like probably the most ideal thing um but yeah that's just like to me that's been like what i've been doing lately is just trying to make things uh from a queer perspective but also to encompass more than just myself in it because you know my my first work was always just all me you know like all about myself, you know? 
And now I'm kind of trying to be more like other people too. <laughs> yeah. I think that's been a, I think it's been happening a lot. Like I just read an article about a, I mean, it's a white male artist out in a, who worked for the BBC who was talking about more like less self-expression and more collective uh, effort and protest and everything. But I guess that's not really what we're focusing on at the moment, but we can talk more about another time, I guess too. Um, but uh, so wait, what's, what's happening in these protest films like how so you you said you're like you're trying to sort of protest i guess like the mainstream sort of lesbian cinema i mean mainstream in quotes i guess but um yeah. is that that's like the gist of it like your pro uh how does that relate to like the sort of uh not just conservative lesbianism but like the conservative movement overall like how does that relate to your resistance to uh like the much larger oppression going on in the system uh you can only focus on one thing that is you know like there's there's so many things that are happening right now like obviously there's like people who like i mean everybody's terrified for multiple reasons you know <laughs> like we yeah. not clearly i would look at something like yeah i mean oppression of like is probably a really big thing. I know that it is. I've definitely experienced it, and it sucks. But um, a lot of people are experiencing that oppression, uh, and you know, worse oppression as well that goes unaddressed a lot of the time. Uh, and so, to me, it's like you can protest as across the board as possible, but sometimes you really do have to focus in. And so, whenever I'm like kind of focusing initially on like you know, I want to make this like movie and it's going to be about like lesbians and just by being about lesbians it then therefore becomes political and it therefore becomes a political resistance act yeah. um more so whenever you start to incorporate like other themes in your work um and so, you know like some of this stuff is like for instance one of the short films is just based on uh the terrible the trope movie of like the two women live in the middle of like the woods or something and then like <laughs> and it's just like hi i'm a dude and like this one girl's like oh my god i've been waiting for a dude like <laughs> if, like her girlfriend like you know something horrible and tragic happens to her girlfriend but like closure on it because we're like oh but her girlfriend was really fucked up and like you know it just is like this ridiculous trope that you saw a lot in the 60s so basically just doing a comedy version of that um, there's like another short film I'm working on that's called My Kiss is an Obscenity, which even by itself is just an obviously radical <laughs> concept, is that like, you know, to me, it's amazing that like, you know, you could just like have a consensual kiss between two people and to some people that's just like an absolute obscenity. There's just something just stunning to my perspective about that. Um, so yeah, that's just kind of like what I'm focusing on at this time for like the first few months of like <laughs> seven. Yeah. Yeah. I know that's been like one of your interests too. Like I know you've posted endlessly about vampire lesbian films from the sixties and seventies and everything too. And I love those movies. Like they're fucked up, but there's, they're the only ones, like they're the only movies that have characters that are like me, I guess. Kind right. of. Well, it's like black exploitation like, in the sixties and seventies too. Like that was just what there was. Right. Yeah. And I'm just like, okay, well I present some, I like have long, like long black hair. 
you know, wear red lipstick and black dresses. I like look like these fucking ladies in these movies. And so to me, it's like, you know, whenever I was growing up, that was like the only representation there really was. And I know that that's like such a strange thing because they're ultimately bad. Like they're ultimately like representations. Uh, but sometimes that's like all you have, you know? So it's like, you just kind of cling to that stuff. Does the intent with those matter to you at all? Like, cause some of those people, they, it oh, yeah. seems like they were like trying, they weren't trying to be problematic. They were actually trying to do something and doing it the only way they could. But does that like, a, does that matter oh, to you? Do you think? The intent matters um, always. I mean, it doesn't dictate how I feel about it. If, you know, the artist's intent was not to offend me and I'm offended, that doesn't super matter. I'll, like, <laughs> right. take it down, you know? I'll think about it. But, uh, yeah, it doesn't super matter in that way. But intent, as far as my analysis of things go, absolutely matters. I think about that all of the time, so. Uh, well, cool. Um should we move on to the interviews, I guess? Do you want to talk uh, about your person first? Yeah, the person who I interviewed this episode, I have multiple more that are coming throughout the month of January and maybe beyond that. Yeah. Uh, but this episode, the person who I interviewed is Emma Hubois, who is a comic critic, and she is absolutely incredible. I highly recommend you follow her on Twitter. Um, just has really wonderful things to say about where comics are going as, just from a critical perspective. Oh, okay. And um, so then after that will be Kayla Miller, who is an older friend of mine I spoke to. Hold on, sorry, I've got a call. <coughs> sorry, I've had the flu for like a month or three weeks or whatever. But um, anyway, yeah, Kayla Miller, she's a great... Uh, comic book artist actually um, an illustrator she has a very unique style and she focuses a lot on queer uh, LGBT identity sort of things um, incorporates a lot of people of color into her work and um, tends to have like a large teenage fan base I believe on Tumblr like sourced through Tumblr, Tumblr a lot of times like a lot of those kids that are just sort of like looking for uh, things to present them and she speaks to them and I uh, yeah I was just sort of curious what she was planning going forward and yeah so that'll be next after um, uh, Sarah Century's interview and I guess if anybody else wants to talk to us again feel free to reach out to us or if anybody wants to do any of these talks themselves um, uh, more than welcome to send them in as well. Uh, yeah, I guess we'll at least be doing this through the inauguration in a few couple of weeks, and if we keep having more, we can go as long as we want um, up through whatever inauguration in 2020, I guess. Um, yeah, we'll have a lot of really good interviews that'll be coming up for like the next few weeks too. So yeah, definitely if you like this episode, tune in again because it's gonna keep being awesome. But yeah. uh, that's my roommate just got home, so I actually probably need to get off this okay. uh, introduction. Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, real quick, they can find you where at a sarahcentury.words? Yeah. Something. I'm at, uh, yeah, it's like sarahcentury.bandcamp. <laughs> no, just kidding. It's uh, sarahcentury.wordpress.com for right now. I'm assuming someday I'm going to have like a way better website, but I don't today. <laughs> And also, uh, I'm on Twitter for the moment. I'm on Instagram for the moment. These are all very tenuous. Someday I just want somebody to do this stuff for me. So, but yeah, for now, Twitter, why not? <laughs> all right, cool.
Um, yeah, and she's a lot of great work, as we've talked about before, numerous times, I guess, at this point. And, uh, yeah. Um, so, second will be Kayla Miller, and I've just, based on the name, I'm going to blame the flu for it. Can you introduce your person one last time? Yeah, Emma Hubois. Okay. All right, well, uh, here we go. Uh, do you want to do me a, just introduce yourself and kind of tell me like what your past work is? Um, yeah, for sure. I'm Emma Hua. Um, I'm mostly known as a comic book reviewer um, and critic. Uh, I do write and draw as well. I'm going to be included in um, DC and IDW's uh, Love is Love anthology coming up in uh, two, three weeks. Yeah. Um, I'm a, uh, I'm also a consultant on, um, Bitch Planet. Um, I think that's all I can say publicly <laughs> about what I've been up to. Right. Um, but yeah, um, I do an off and on, uh, column for, uh, London Graphic Novel Network, and I typically do review work for Comicosity. Yep. I've read a bunch of the reviews. I was catching up on that today. Nice. Yeah, um, it's all really great. Thank you for writing about comics. I feel like uh, whenever I was growing up, the only comic criticism I could ever find was like Wizard Magazine or something, which like I don't want to like harsh on too much, but it was definitely one really specific viewpoint. So it's nice that now there's so many people who are writing about comics. Um, Absolutely. Let's see. So uh, when did you know that you wanted to get into art? Like when did you know you wanted to be a writer uh, and an artist? Um, geez, I mean, I've, I've probably been, been drawing since I could pick up a crayon. Um, I'd, I'd say it's in terms of wanting to be a, um, professional writer, it's probably when I was like 10 years old and I read Jurassic Park, I think. Um, and wanting to draw comics probably didn't come, uh, that much, that much later, really. Yeah. Just like early, right out the bat. Mm-hmm. Um, what I it's kind of like interesting I'm trying to like ask these questions across the board of a lot of different people uh so what kind of role do you feel that just being a part of the LGBT community plays in your art um well I mean at, at a basic level your you know your experiences and, and whatever um you know have have shaped your your life um is going to shape your art like it's there's no such thing as like a, a you know non-political art or anything like that or artwork that isn't informed by your viewpoint um and who you are it just kind of i guess the the explicitness of of, of how you want to portray that or um yeah, I guess would, would, would be the key thing because like that, that influence is always going to be there, but it's kind of how do you want it to manifest and how can necessarily the the audience, you know, how, how can the, the audience recognize that is a big thing. Um, and that's something that I've found that's very acute when it comes to um, trans representation, trans art specific, because if you, if you use the term 
you know, trans aesthetics, um, not, you're going to lose 95% of your audience. They have no idea what the hell you're talking about. Um, and if, if you figure that out by deduction, like what it means, um, and of course that's, that's a, that's a wide network of aesthetics. It's not one singular thing, of course. Right. Of course. Um, but at the same time, uh, even if they figure out by deduction, they don't really know what that might refer to typically. So you, you run into these situations. Um, I mean, there was a, today on, on Twitter, there's a, a trans webcomic artist who um, had spotted that there was an article that said, you know, these are the, the top 10 trans women characters in comics. And hers was the only one. She was listed as number three, I, I believe, on the list. And hers was the only one that was created by a trans woman. And there was a, there's a point about that on this list of 10. And she's just saying, well, this is, you know, it, it's pretty ridiculous that... You know, I mean, she was sort of uh, what's the word tolerant of the fact that I don't know what what site this was for. I could probably guess, but I don't want to. But um, <laughs> that there was kind of a mandate to focus on, you know, higher profile or more, you know, bigger corporate presences. Right. Um, but that they could only that they only went to pick one, uh, and they're going to say, and they're, they're they're ranking this. You know, number one, it's it's a rank, um, and that you know somehow so these cisgender presentations are supposedly somehow better but i mean and, and that's the thing and how but the, the question is how is a cisgender audience well like a primarily cisgender audience if we're talking about the mainstream um going to even be able to have a framework to judge something like that when they don't they haven't been exposed right. to art by trans people and they haven't been exposed to a critical framework that can say like these are the influences or these are the conceptions of self that you know trans artists typically draw on um so i mean it's it, you're kind of at an impasse where you you find a a, a a silly list like that um but then you also kind of understand well yeah they don't understand the aesthetics and they don't understand the aesthetics because they don't invest in the art they don't invest in the art because there's some you know cisgender artist or director or whomever who's going to you know present it from a completely cisgender lens that they're going to empathize with right it's not going to have that alien aspect right um, yeah. right yeah I, I hope i hope that answers the question no it does absolutely and also you know it's the same as as you say like there's no like right perspective i guess like um so what excites you the most about being an artist and a writer? Like, what kind of drives you? Um, well, I mean, there, there's just always kind of a restless need to, to do it. Um, you know, and, and I think that's a key thing. You kind of find a lot of times um, you'll have people asking uh, creators um, of in various forms, like, what do you do about writer's block and this kind of thing, and someone... Mm -hmm who comes back and keeps trying to do and they can just never finish something. And um, I can't remember if it was Bendis, uh, Brian Michael Bendis or Matt Fraction. I think it was one of the two. Um, and maybe both at different times had gotten this question. They kind of said, well, if you just can't, you know, put pen to paper like that consistently in some form, then it's probably time to walk away. Yeah. Um, and that to me is such an alien perspective because whether I necessarily get something finished to the point of being able to publish it, 
uh, professionally or pitch it or whatever, or or if it's just like a gigantic Google Drive document, mm-hmm. um, I'm always in there doing it. Right. Um, yeah, it's like the opposite stance of someone like Linda Berry or something who is just every person should create, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think if you, you certainly can and should. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's fine. But I think it's at, at the point where, to me, it's just always been it's just always been a creative drive. Like, people will say, oh, man, I can't draw. And the answer to that is, no, of course you can draw. Yeah. It's that you haven't reached a critical, like a, a point of critical mastery. You say, I want to invest the amount of time it would take to get to this point. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not a neurobiologist, so I can't say <laughs> that there isn't such thing as, you know, predispositions or some minute amount of inborn talent. Um, but if you want to do it, you can. I mean, right. especially in comics, because the range of cartooning that you can um, that you can do, um, especially in the age of web comics, where you know the, the quote unquote means of production have been so um, like all those walls have been torn down that yeah. if you want to make a dumbass stick figure thing like XKCD, you you can. Yep. Um, or you can like you don't have to be J.H. Williams the mm-hmm. third, right? Yeah. Uh, who's doing these, these gigantically rendered things? You don't have to. You know, there's so many different schools of art and ways you can do this, and different ways of participating in the medium, right? Um, you could you could be a writer, you could be an artist, you could be writer artist, um, lettering, and all those kinds of stuff. That there's creative outlets for you if you want to invest in them. Yeah. Um, so to me, it's 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 like being a shark. Um, is that I'm always going to be writing and drawing something. Right. Yeah, uh, I feel very much the same. Um, let's see. So uh, kind of the point of this whole interview series is just being able to talk to people who are uh, of the queer community or mm-hmm. marginalized communities, really, and just talking about uh, how they feel that politics are kind of in a way. So not going like super like what do you think of like every stance i follow your twitter so i'm pretty mm-hmm. sure i know like i have like a fairly good concept but uh, right but i would say that like obviously there's been so many problems like we already had so many problems before the election it seems like after the election people are really emboldened in a lot of ways um to just be kind of well people are being extra wonderful i think in some ways but then there's a lot of people who are being extra terrible as well so mm-hmm. uh my question would be, how do you think that the way that politics are changing currently in this country is going to change the landscape for queer artists? Um, well, one thing I should I should clarify, and I'm, I'm guessing you're probably going to point that out, is that I am coming to you from Canada, yeah, um, in Vancouver. Um, so I'm I'm to to a certain degree one step removed from that. I mean, I, I am a dual citizen. Sure. Um, and I mean, it, it, it was in my short term uh, plans to move to the States, to come down to California um, and be closer to the industry and and work in. And I mean, I don't know what that's going to look like Yeah. Um, it, because, yeah, I don't know. Um, but of course, I mean, that, and, that, and that's the interesting thing on a macro scale in the States is that um, Canada is a very um, federalized country, like the concentration of power is 
very explicitly with the federal government. Yeah. Um, so your civil rights and these kind of things, they live and die by the federal government unless you live in Quebec because they have a whole bunch of concessions that they have um, been able to, to maintain. But typically speaking, the concept of states' rights does not really exist. Um, there are certain things that the provinces can battle back on, but the concentration of power is with the federal government. So, I mean, we're a parliamentary democracy, too. So it's it's a delicate balance when it comes to the federal government. Right. In the, st- in the states, um, it's, it's going to depend largely on where you are to start with. Because if you're in a state that has managed to claw some forward momentum on, um, on you know, the, the most literally pertinent issues like, you know, protections uh, for, you know, employment for students, for access to, you know, public washrooms for, you know, whatever your, your um, gender expression is. Sure. Um, if you're in a state that has managed to claw a certain amount of progress forward, then you can be shielded from, you could potentially be shielded from the federal government. Right. Um, from from Pence, from Trump, from whatever. Um, but if you're in a state that has been lagging behind, um, you're going to lose where the Obama administration was moving things forward on a federal level. Because you kind of, you have, I find in the states, you have two potential sources of progress, two potential champions for you, your state representatives and the federal government. Because the state can get there before the federal government or the federal government may outpace your state, depending on where you are, right? Because there were, I don't know how many, there was over a dozen individual states that had, you know, gay marriage legalized, right? Before, um, uh, before it was finally ratified. Um, and of course, well, the courts as well. So I guess three, right? And you see that with like weed too and like stuff like that. Yes. Yeah. We just saw that. And so, um, I was just reading the LA times, I can't remember what the exact position is, but they, um, uh, Jerry Brown has, has just um, installed a new guy who's like the, the journalist they described his job as basically being an obstructionist to the federal government. Because, I mean, as as soon as the election announced, you know, the election results were announced the next morning, uh, you know, uh, Sacramento and Albany both said, we're going to fight you. <laughs> like, yeah. whatever you want to do, we're going to fight you. Right. Um, totally. So if, if you're in California. You know, you have that. If you're in New York, you have that. Mm-hmm. I mean, but you look at some of these other places, like look at Kansas. They are they're a black hole. Yeah. Right. They've they're just this bizarre, extreme, uh, you know, experiment in in Tea Party economic theory. It's it's like uh, Pol Pot's Cambodia over there. Yeah. So it it's really you know, and and the the, the absolute street fights going on in North Carolina. Yeah. Um, because I think that he was defeated, was he not? And and he's trying to cling to. Yeah. It's it's so so it's it's gonna, it's weird. But at the same time, I you know in comics number one, pretty much everyone is a freelancer, right? Um, and I can't remember exactly what the precedent was, but it's a fairly recent one that just allows you to shred. Um, employee rights by treating everyone as a quote-unquote contractor and oh, not yeah. actually have real employees. Yep. That's a, that's a fairly recent bit of U.S. labor law that I can't really remember exactly where it came in, but that's a huge thing. Um, and then you look at situations like healthcare. I mean, if, if they're, if they're going to pull back 
Obamacare and replace it with whatever, you know, then that's going to jeopardize, further jeopardize it. Because so our freelancers don't ha- they don't get um, healthcare right. from work, and I think that's kind of the key thing is that all of these labor concerns are are still front and center for the LBGT community, and it's just that the precariousness gets amplified yeah. because your opportunities for work are less. Um, the issues that you face getting work. Um, or, or even being able to exist in the public sphere are amplified. So it's it's all the same anxieties for the most part that are amplified. Um, and then there's just a few key things that are different. So it's the same issues everybody's facing. And that's kind of why, you know, the, the difficulty of the, the concept of solidarity kind of not existing in the political sphere. You know, you have kind of this specious idea of identity politics for you know forwarded by the right and and it's it's really been adopted by mainstream liberal politics because you see these situations where it's like oh you know there will be someone writing an out or the advocate being like do we really need the t and lbgt because because they just want to assimilate they just want to they just want to assimilate and get rid of us and they think that, that we're holding them back. Man, that you after know. Ellen shit yesterday. <laughs> um, I don't actually know about that. Um, but I, I, you know, when I was at the Rainbow Hub, like our, uh, we didn't last for too long, sadly, but we had a good run. And our, our, our site was founded because our founder was, was just so put off by the entrenched biphobia at after Ellen. Yeah. Um, she said, you know, screw this. And, you know, we had strong trans representation and we had strong other issues and the whole thing was that um like even in our comics department when we were talking about what comics we wanted to cover um you know i would always advocate for and no one had a problem with this of course we all agreed on this these points to say that you know cyborg like when his series was coming out uh in the in the new 52 said well we're going to cover this right i mean vic is being portrayed as straight but we wanted to be a site that treated you know, black issues as queer issues and queer issues as black issues, which they are, they are. right? Because obviously there are people who are both, yeah. you know, and then that recommendation that that recognition recognition that we don't just do things that are explicitly, well, this has a gay lead, yeah. right? Um, or stuff like that to say that, you know, we don't have to be just this one thing that we can recognize that these these are where the most critical points of uh, representation or whatnot, the most critical battles or civil rights battles are. Yeah. We want to be at the forefront of it, um, especially because if, if you look back at the history of the LBGT movement, um, you know, and you look at who was it at Stonewall who was throwing the first bricks, you know, who was at the Compton's cafeteria riots? It was, you know, it was trans women of color, largely black, because they were in the most well, one of the reasons is because they're in the most precarious social positions out of anyone. Yeah, and um, they got screwed for, like by history and by like definitely mm. a lot of like more binary uh, lesbians and gays for sure. That's yeah, um, and and that and that can work in different spheres too because if you look at it like who the founders of the you know the Black Lives Matter movement are, they were you know queer black women. Yeah. So if you look at history, like the most you know radical you know influential get getting going people uh fighting for civil rights in the united states 
are typically queer people of color. I mean, D-Ray, I, I had no idea he was gay for the longest time. Yeah. I had no clue because, I mean, I would be, you know, reading his tweets or reading articles about him in the straight media that I don't know how pertinent it would have been to even say that he was gay, right, mm-hmm. um, at that point. So I'm not going to I'm not gonna shade the mainstream media for not necessarily saying well, this is, you know, meet the black gay uh, rights activist. But, uh, but it was that people were starting to say, um, you know, uh, how come the, the the mainstream gay media isn't talking about him, yeah. isn't profiling him? Um, and those were guys like um, Saeed Jones at uh, BuzzFeed and Ira Madison at MTV who were like, you know, you guys are ridiculous. Like these, these black gay writers who are at MTV, they're at BuzzFeed, they're elsewhere. They're like, you know out in the advocate and those they're, they're going by the same company by the way those two yeah um, they're not covering that and then who and then they have a spread for milo yiannopoulos yeah you know and this big photo and it's just you know so there's there's obviously one side of this equation is it, you know is saying that yes we are in in it together these are intertwined issues and the other is not yeah um and that's and that's kind of the thing is is recognizing how intertwined um, these issues are, you know. So I don't think that there's, I mean, other than than the specific labor issues of being freelancers, you know, the the overriding issues facing the working population of the United States are the struggles of the queer community and the comics community, but they are simply amplified by the precariousness. Uh, you know the people face within that right you know yeah a hundred percent i agree uh definitely like the the whole community i always came from was like you know punk diy activism kind of community so uh yeah anytime i hear some shit like that after a lens shit or something it's always like wait what no like why and um i think it's easy to get like really uh disappointed by that but then at the same time those are the same people who like we've actually kind of always been fighting like they're the same uh the same people who like you know turned tail kind of like uh before i guess and like weren't the leaders of like the initial movements and that sort of thing um so i guess like my last question for you is how do you think what do you think is going to change about how people interact with art in the future like, do you think that the mediums are going to change? Like, do you, and this can be really specific to comics as well. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, I think the biggest myth you have to dismantle is this idea that art magically becomes better um, under a totalitarian regime or yeah. under a fascistic regime or under a repressive right-wing regime, whatever we want to frame it. I mean, it's it's such a silly nonsense because it's it's that whole you know um suffering makes better art kind of a deal that kind of either ignores or fetishizes the social misery that um a lot of artists live in um because i I think to start with you have to look at this especially in comics and say well bitch planet didn't arise um after trump was elected i mean it was like that's a comic that was fully conceived of with and executed within um, Obama's second term, yeah. right? Um, and and that was, 
you know, and you look at so many other comic scammers like Nighthawk. Nighthawk was not the product of the of Trump. It was it was the product of Rahm Emanuel's uh, Chicago, right? Right. Um, and even you know prior to him being mayor, because he was on, you know, him and like that establishment of the city. Because of course Chicago has been a deeply uh, segregated city for a very very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and so these things like the the Black Lives Matter movement did not, you know, came up under Obama. It did not come up under Trump. And all of the art that comes out of this, like Alice Cott's uh, material um, and things like that, that was, you know, covering stuff like the 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 uncovering a home in Square as soon as it happened. Um, there's all of these examples of of artwork, um, you know, that like the Infinite Loop, all of all of these things that that are tackling. Um, you know whether it's prejudice or whether it's, um, uh, you know the the more I- expressive um, and and I guess positive end of things. It you know we're already producing in a golden age, so I mean I think it's it's going to make it harder, um, definitely because I mean you you look at these things you read about um, they're saying that Walmart and Disney and the big corporations are pivoting from you know, open support of Clinton to now open support of Trump. Yeah. Um, so what happens at Marvel? Who, and I just called them the other day, I called them cowards. Um, and I think in today's media landscape, they are. Um, because you can say, okay, well, they've launched this series, like the the Miss America Chavez one. Yeah. With, um, I can't remember the the uh, the writer's name. I know her Twitter handle, the Quirky Rican, um, but with uh, Joe Quinones. And it's a fantastic series, but um, they've also got the Iceman one. They're saying, you know, we've got a gay writer on this. and but They're two small, small niche um, characters, and they're being released in this big vanguard, this big wave of Marvel titles. Yeah. Every six months, Marvel will have a huge batch of titles that come out, and a huge batch of them will die, mm-hmm. right? Yep. It's just a winnowing. Like, they overproduce, and they shrink down. And, I mean, it's a basic publishing thing. I've talked to people in publishing outside of comics, and I've talked to people who do comics in France, like the, you know, uh, the Bon Dessinée scene. Um, and they say the same thing, you know. But in France, it's not individual monthly comics. It's big albums that you're paid, you know, in advance for uh, to work on for months. Um, and novelists face the same thing, you know. It's it's this this whole overpro- overproduction and hyper competition and whatnot. So, the question is like on a series like Iceman, where they had a big to do about okay, we've we've made Bobby gay, um, and it's just kind of this isn't something that people are clamoring for necessarily. Right. It's not something that had been seeded, and we're not talking about North Star here. And it was like in the run up to this, like before it and after it, you had these bizarre statements from Axel Alonso. On Hercules, you know, everyone's asking (laughs) in, you know, following Secret Wars, is he going to be portrayed as bisexual? And Alonzo didn't say, well, you know what, it's 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 up to you to interpret these things, uh, you know, but we're not necessarily going to intentionally follow this. But he was saying, well, no, he's straight. And the people saying, well, what about Deadpool? And he says, no, he's straight. And then all of the the significant writers on both characters. We're openly saying, yeah, no, we've always written these people to be, you know, uh, subtextually not heterosexual, right? Um, And so he's saying, he's shutting it down and saying, no, that one's not it. That one's not it. Um, The issue of, you know, Angela, Queen of Hell, where she's finally, like, actually making out with Sarah on page, 
his response is, well, we're not labeling it. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, that was like, and, the, yeah, I've heard some weird shit like that from that guy, totally. Um, and, and then they go straight to the advocate to, to, to push hard this whole Iceman thing. Iceman is gay right. now, like, this is a huge celebration. It's just like, well, why? Why did you pick Iceman? Because, like, the X-Men, remember, are a vastly diminished franchise right now. They, they're barely holding on. They barely exist. They're not putting big-name writers on these books. Um, they're not putting big attention on them. They're saying, well, look, we're splitting up to the blue team and the gold team like we did ages ago, and they've got uh, Mark Guggenheim and Colin Bunn on them. These aren't exciting names. We're not talking about stuff like when Joss Whedon came on, when Graham Morrison came on, right. when Jason Aaron or Brian Matt and Michael Bendis. And it, it's the whole... It's because Disney doesn't have the movie rights back, so they're 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 keeping the X Men as this silly, weak little franchise, and that's where they're bringing the big gay character from. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and Miss America, that is something like that's an organic development, right? She she's been a lesbian yeah. in this incarnation since. I mean, I don't know if the original one did. Please don't look at her first appearance; it's a terrible. But like from from Gil and McKelvey forward. We know that the that this is this was the intent. This is true. Yeah, she was so um, good. Like right at that time, it was like um, she was. Yeah, that first appearance, no good. <laughs> right after that, though, it got great. Yeah. Um, so things carried forward from there, and that is a nice organic development of something. But you look in, and Marvel has to be in terms of where prominent LBGT characters stand within their portfolio. They have to be dead last in the industry. Yeah. Um, they have to be. They no, it's right. Dark, yeah, Dark Horse. Sure. No, Dark Horse is the last. Dark oh, Horse yeah. is absolutely nothing <laughs> uh, that I know of. Right. Um, uh, from for a prominent standpoint, um, maybe Mike Mignola is going to try to you know get one last gasp out of Hellboy by right. outing him. I don't know, but you know, you look at DC. It's Wonder Woman's seventy fifth anniversary. It's the absolute peak of of their attempt at media saturation. The movie's coming out next year. Um, and they hand Greg Rucka off to Comicosity, uh, where he can say in an interview, yeah, that's our approach to this, the Wonder Woman is queer. Then you have two graphic novels hitting the same year. You know, Grant Morrison, he's been stewing on this thing for a decade with Yannick Paquette. Earth One finally comes out, and, and there it is. Wonder Woman has a girlfriend, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, you know, uh, Themyscirin culture is definitely portrayed as being a queer separatist movement Um, and then Jill Thompson's uh, The True Amazon comes out and it's even more explicitly so the the main plot of that comic is a queer romance Uh, you can't argue that it's a fairy tale like she turned Wonder Woman into the first queer Disney princess right (laughs) um you know, and it's hilarious because, of course, Marvel is owned by DC. So, or sorry, Marvel is owned by Disney, yep. not DC. So it's a real kind of a, a, you know, middle finger to both of them, as far as I'm concerned. But you have this where they're, you know, they're coming around to, they're not doing it at a moment where the the eyes are not on the character. They're doing it when all the eyes are on the character. Yeah. Um, and you know, um. Amanda Connor and Jimmy Palmiotti have been, you know, this multi-year spanning Harley Quinn thing yeah. is finally coming to, to fruition. Um, and they've they've been making it pretty clear that she's had homoerotic atten- and you know, 
intentions for everybody that she interacts with. I mean, the the Harley's little little black book. I mean, a little black book only means one thing. Yeah. And they open that they open that with Wonder Woman. I mean, it's <laughs> you know, uh, it it was it was it was not subtle, right? And all of this was gearing up again for the movie. Um, and you've got this situation where they also it was the title that they shipped and marketed the most out of the uh, um, the rebirth initiative. They they shipped out six hundred thousand copies because they said for one of the first times in years um, you can return this if you don't sell it. Oh. You know, and they said we're gonna make a huge initiative out of this. And then you have Jeff Johns on Twitter, you know, right before this saying, you know. Harley Quinn is the fourth pillar of DC now. So he's saying that from, you know, from a sales and marketing standpoint, they're not a trinity company of Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. There is four pillars and Harley's the fourth. So you have this situation where DC is openly embracing having half of their most important characters be queer. Yeah. That's a like relative to what Marvel is doing right now. You have to look at them and say, "What's going on?" Yeah, you know, um, because like Midnighter, you know, it, it was a big deal to bring this character back to actually have a gay writer on him for the first time ever, you know, um, and actually see what 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 a gay like actually gay Midnighter looks like written from that perspective, um, and not just a borderline bad joke. Uh, and, it, and it sold okay, but it didn't last past, you know, seven issues. But DC went back and looked at it, and, and they said, you know, it's important to us to continue this momentum. So they brought it back with another miniseries uh, for Steve Rolando to do of the Midnighter and Apollo, the first time a gay, gay couple has ever led a comic. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they, because and that was the thing, when, when Mockingbird was canceled, when... Um, uh, Nighthawk was cancelled you know all the big wigs at Marvel are we need to make money first we need to make money first you know they won't talk about the marketing they won't talk about nurturing and, and building and sustaining an audience yeah you know they're not talking about we. well if we lose money now we gain money in the long run we have to think outside the direct market you know they're saying well gosh if you guys had pre-ordered more copies because they're only speaking to an existing market they're, they're not looking at ways to expand yeah. Whereas D DC, it seems to me like they're willing to look at this and say, okay, if we take a loss on this, can we grow for the future and build more trust? Because you saw the same thing with Omega Men, which maybe not quite as critical of a thing, but also important because, of course, Kyle Rayner is one of the few premier Latino heroes. So um, they, no one was really, really reviewing it from that perspective, I don't think, but it was still kind of this is a cult series, a cult following. Let's let this series get finished because we trust Tom King, right? Right. Uh, and, and I mean, and, and this anthology that I'm going to be in with, like, I don't know, there's, there's probably like a hundred creators in this thing total. Yeah. The, like the Love is Love anthology. I was brought in by Sarah Gatos, the um, editor on the IDW side. Um, I wasn't recruited by DC for it, but um, they're putting it out. And this was the thing is that, you know, Mark Andreco, you know, uh, was so upset by what happened in uh, uh, Orlando. They said we need to we need to express ourselves artistically and creatively, and somehow. Um, and that was just where it started. He didn't even have a home for it. Um, and then it was um, uh, Jamie S. Rich, who's who's uh, running uh, Vertigo, 
now, um, after Shelley Bond left, uh, that it fell under. And they said, okay, we're going to put this together. And then IDW came in and joined them on it. And they found a home for it. Um, I mean, there, there's going to be, for a mainstream comic, I'll tell you right now, it's going to set a record for the most, um, definitely the most trans uh, contributors. Yeah. Uh, I know that there's at least four, um, including myself and uh, Alejandro, my collaborator, my best friend, um, that, that are in there. Because um, you uh, you have because uh, um, J I Deaton of uh, you know J M Oz explain the X Men is in there for sure, um, and I know there's a, at least a couple other people, um, and obviously gay, lesbian, bi, what have you. I mean, it's and and all the proceeds of this are this are going directly to the victims. So I mean, it's a big thing to step up and say, you know. The, these people are our community. They're part of our industry, and they're they're putting one woman on the cover. Like Bruce Tim is doing a Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy comic in this, Aww. right? A lot of these the high profile creators they were given these characters to portray them like that as. So uh, the, those are the two responses. You either double down on your existing audience, um, which is basically what the GOP has done, right? Right. And they they just kind of try to sell twice as much to half as many or you can look at it and try to take these stands and we'll see i mean i don't know if if this expansion if, if dc's bravery will expand much further beyond um the end of the obama administration i don't know we don't know what the climate's going to be um you know whereas companies you know companies like idw who have been very forward-thinking very progressive in terms of their intentions for gem the holograms you know, opening immediately, um, promoting the fact that um, they were going to have a lesbian couple um, and that they created a brand new transgender character. And they're trying to push these things, push these envelopes um, to recognize that these people have been part of the audience all the time. And these are the people who want to create as well. So there's been this massive expansion. Yeah. Um, and the question is, well, you know, for the bigger players with the bigger corporate backs, what's going to happen? You know, uh, what's the future? It's you don't know. I mean, you definitely know the places like Oni and Boom um, are definitely going to continue to do what they do um, and, and primarily back creators from these backgrounds because that's how they started, because they want to be that alternative um, and nurture these things, but that's the thing. Maybe it's that's the issue that we're facing is that there has been more of an incentive and more of a permissive atmosphere in the last eight years to grow in these ways. And in some places like DC have taken full advantage. Some places like Image um, have taken full advantage because if you look at um, what Emma Rios and Brandon Graham have done with the Ion anthology, they pulled in a whole bunch of people you'd never see in the mainstream. Um, and and even on the Eight House comics, there they pulled in a whole bunch of people that they they've been given kind of free reign to play with this, um, you know, and and bring in, uh, you know, artists from from all kinds of backgrounds that you don't typically see producing the type of comics that you don't see in the mainstream um, from one of the big four. So, I guess we'll have to see um, yeah. if if this growth that's happened, if it can be sustained. Because again, that's a thing. You, you have to kill this myth that 
um, harsh political times create the best work. Because, I mean, yes, obviously Guernica um, was inspired by the, you know, the atrocities of the Spanish Civil War. And, and Picasso, when he drew it, he tried to make it as iconic as possible so that it would be a spirit that would carry forward and not just be of that instant, you know, or you've got other artists like um, the Raft and the Medusa and whatnot that, gal- that, that these terrible things that happen galvanize them to create loud statements. Um, but that's not all there is to political art. And or, oh, sorry, there's almost always just something terrible happening to you. <laughs> like, there's always going to be so much going on that you hmm. can draw from in that way. But there's, like, never, there's never been a peaceful time, I feel like, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, that, 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 that's true to a certain extent. But, uh, but not all great art that deals with marginalized communities or their struggles or their triumphs, um, you know, result from, from that kind of direct thing right. you know i mean you know like i said like the, the 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 resurgence of wonder woman's queerness didn't come out of some kind of we need to you know this is the rise of fascism i mean morrison and pacquiao were already drawing wonder woman fighting nazis for um uh the next volume of earth one before uh trump had even announced himself right right because they were going back to uh, the Marston stuff, and they were going back to these these ideas of, you know, submission and dominance and and whatnot. So they're going to take that head on next volume. That's what I'm guessing because I've seen on Peckett's Facebook a couple drawings, but I'm assuming that's where they're going to take that. And that was ages ago. Mm-hmm. So I mean, these things, these themes we play with, like we're ready, you know. Um, be, but you can look back though at um, at the '80s. And I think the 80s probably will be a big um, clue to what we're going to see in comics. Um, Because, I mean, you look at Hellblazer, the original Jamie Delano run, uh, and and that they were going right for the throat with Thatcher. Like, that was some vicious stuff because they were writing for, (coughs) drawing in the UK to publish in the States, right? Um, You know, where Karen Berger was not under any political pressure to, you know, bow to any kind of pro Thatcher lobby mm-hmm. so they could get away with that stuff and we can and we see what um, superhero comics under fascism in uh, uh, in England look like I mean the fear machine arc you go back to that thing that is that is intense but that's what was being done to the Romany and the Irish traveler population yeah um, and uh, the, the current writer, Simon Oliver, and the current artist, Moritat, they went back to a character, Mercury, from that arc um, when in Rebirth. And, you know, they were talking about Trump. They were talking about the rise of fascism when the primaries were still going on. I mean, the first issue dropped right after the Brexit vote. And they didn't talk about it explicitly. They were more talking about John's trip to the, to, uh, the States at that point in that arc. But they had already set up, you know, the boundaries to say, well, we were recognizing that there certainly is a rising tide of right wing resentment. Um, and this is what could come back. They were writing it open ended. Obviously, they didn't know which way the election was going to go or even the uh, the referendum on the European Union. Yeah. We're going to go at that point. Um, but they saw it and they and they're like, well, this is what John Constantine does. This is where he was born. 
Um, and so now that we're further in and there's that, that scene where John goes to the racetrack and um, there's a horse called um, Boris Johnson's Knob. Um, but all the horses are based on Nigel Farage and um, uh, David Cameron. And there's just this almost Garth Ennis level just humor um, of, of the way the race elapses and how it's a political allegory for what had just happened. Um, but, you know, it's it's like Jay-Z has that one line in Blue Magic. He says, you know, they're trying to bring the 80s back. And he says, that's okay. That's where they made me at. And, you know, so we have these characters and the eyes, these ideas that are prepped and ready. I mean, Hellblazer is going to be the title, one of the big titles to watch from the major companies because Con- John Constantine was created to respond to this. Right. Um, and, I mean, obviously you don't need to do it through IPs like that. But, I mean, we know the comics as a medium are up to the task. We know the people that can create very strong responses to this. You know, that's why people keep st- are still going back to V for, v for Vendetta, Transmetropolitan, stuff like this. So the question to me is where is the brave work going to be coming from and who's going to be allowed to write it? And draw it because we know it can happen. We know the medium is capable. Um, if they could do that 30 years ago, the current generation can do it now. So the question is, who's going to enable who to bring it out? It's it's worth noting that I wrote um, and like this thing is going to come back to haunt me, and I kind of knew that it would. But I wrote the um, the forward to uh, Kate Leth and Ariel um, Ariel Jovalanos's uh, fresh romance comic. Um, school spirit because uh, Janelle Asellan asked me because um, I was one of the most aggressive um, reviewers of that comment of that title for sure yeah. uh, when it was coming out as an anthology um, and she asked me if I could do a blurb for uh, the the digital trade release of it on Comixology she said god yeah of course so I gave her a bit and she looked at him and she came back she's like no like I need you to expand this can you can you actually write the introduction to it and I was like can I <laughs> Like this has yep. been my secret goal all along, um, <laughs> but I wrote this thing, and, and the way I phrased it was a letter um, to the future because that's kind of, you know, because I always remember reading like uh, trades of Transmetropolitan or whatever that had like Patrick Stewart and Garth Ennis and all these incredible people writing about it, and I'd be reading it five, six years later. Um, recapturing the essence of what it was like creating it, or the editor of Electra Assassin talking about how weird it was for Miller and Sinkovich to come together. And um, so I was thinking about that, and so I was like, you know what? Why don't I pretend the person reading this is reading it five years from now? Um, <laughs> you know, and so I was like, well, this is where we are in LBGT representation, and it's a time of striving, and it's a difficult time, and this is as far as we can get. Um, but here's what's magical and what's special about what these two creators put together, um, you know, and how they've really charted us a course beyond the mutant metaphor for uh, queer representation in fantasy storytelling. Um, but it just comes back to haunt me because, like, ever since I've written that, things have gotten tougher, you know. So, um, and I mean, I don't know what the future of that particular edition is. I think it'll probably just stay on... Um, uh, that's probably the only way you'll get my introduction is if you buy it on comic, Comixology now because it, I don't think it was in the full, like the big omnibus and probably won't be in the web comics that are being put out by the new publisher. Right. Um, but it's it's going to be out there. Um, and it's just, it was a lot more prescient than 
not that I intended, but then I expected. Right. Yeah. But that kind of sums it all up for me, I think. Kayla Miller. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, Trump. Um. So you don't really consider your stuff like that political, even though you're like talking to all these depressed teenagers that <laughs> have gender identity issues and stuff. And <laughs> yeah, I just like I feel like that's just. I think I live in a bubble, and I just assumed everyone was okay. You have to get off my lap if you're going to rub against the mic because that's <laughs> not going to work out. He's He's kicked off the podcast. Goodbye. That's what Boris used to do all the time when I was doing this regularly. Like, every time I would start recording, he would walk up onto the table and then start rubbing against the mic. <laughs> um, but yeah, your bubble that you live in, your liberal elite. Yeah, it's my liberal elite bubble. <laughs> um, yeah, I just kind of always, like, since almost everyone I know has something going on where it's like, oh, like, I'm, like, thinking about my sexuality or I'm thinking about my gender identity or I'm just, like, defying uh, gender stereotypes. Like, I thought that was normal. <laughs> Do you feel And less... I guess... I feel disillusioned. Um, I don't know. I feel, yeah, like, I feel like I was woken up from thinking that. <laughs> woke from your woke state yeah. i was living too woke and <laughs> yeah. i needed to like go back to sleep a little bit to see how the other half lives right. <laughs> that's, that's why i'm curious because like when i approached you you said like you don't really consider yourself political you didn't think you'd be approaching it really but it seems like just inherent in what you do is like sort of not i hate to call it subversive just people's existence that isn't very <laughs> subversive, but what you do is very much still outside the mainstream. And it's sort of speaking to like a lot of people that sort of don't really see themselves represented normally. I don't, I don't know. It just like, it seemed like that would be affected by the world changing <laughs> for the worse for them. Um, I mean, I hope that, things don't change super drastically. Um, I know that they are in some ways, but I mean, I'm not going to change what I'm doing, I guess. And I hope that other creators don't, you know, start kind of getting like less diverse in their works and stuff for oh. fear of backlash. I mean, I haven't experienced any backlash for um, my characters being, you know, gay or anything. Is that what, like, you were thinking about when I originally approached you, when you said you didn't really think you'd change? Um, well, I was thinking I'm not going to get more political okay. because I think that would be, like, a weird tonal shift <laughs> if suddenly, like, my teen superhero story was about them, like, going to march on the White House or something. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm also not going to shy away from, you know, the issues I've already been covering. And 
you know, issues I'd like to cover more in the future, like gender identity and that sort of thing. Yeah. That is interesting. Like, that's, that's like something that didn't, didn't really even occur to me, like the idea of shying away. I just assumed everybody would be angrier and like start going, like you're saying, like I'm not, not necessarily like uh, marching on the White House even, but just like uh, just more of that angst showing through. But which is also why I was interested in you, because that was my immediate thoughts is like just like punk and like nihilist post-punk coming back and like just angry <laughs> transgressive shit like no wave and everything and i was thinking I about can't, you you're like i can't tell like, you how many guys have come up to me since the results came out and have said like well at least punk music is gonna be good again <laughs> it's like shut your stupid mouth for five seconds i'm one of those assholes but <laughs> But no, that's what that's what interests me about you is because like during the Obama era, especially like this new sincerity thing came back, and you very much seem like a part of that. Like you're very sincere. You're very like your stuff just very much expresses like love and acceptance, and it's sort of I don't know. Like there wasn't. I guess we had that under Nixon, kind of like we had the hippie movement and everything, like under Ford. Well, started under Ford, I guess, but then moved on to a little bit into Nixon before being annihilated. But um, do you think that can endure for four years under Trump? I think it has to. I think that um, I was talking about this yesterday. That I think that the internet, especially, has given people. Um, kind of a support system that they might not have had in the past. Well, they definitely didn't have in the past. I mean, if you lived in like a rural area, you probably wouldn't have anyone to reach out to when you're dealing with, you know, your sexuality, gender identity, or even, you know, racial issues. If you're like the only black kid in your town, like you're not going to be able to, like in the seventies, you couldn't go on Google and, you know, like listen to other people talk about their issues, but now you can And I think that's not going to go away. I think that people are still going to look for community um, on the internet and in real life, but if they can't get in real life on the internet. And yeah, I'm not going to just become like a pessimist. Like I know that things are bad right now, but I want to give people something like that they can smile about and read and feel warm, I guess, feel good. So is your goal to like stay completely removed from sort of what's happening in your work still, despite what happens? Um, in my comic, yeah. Probably not on Twitter. I mean, I, I think I've already been like yeah. a little bit angry <laughs> on Twitter. <laughs> I will probably continue to be a little bit angry on Twitter. Um, but yeah, when it comes to like my comic work and especially like my stuff that's for younger kids like I'm working on right now Mm. I'm not going to get political in it I'm just gonna you know do what I was doing before which is kind of normalizing you know alternative families and you know seeing people of different genders and races and different positions that they might not get into in the mainstream media so none of like the negative stuff like no introductions of shock therapy or (laughs) Anything like that. No, no scare tactics for uh, the young adult readers <laughs> is, my, um, is my philosophy. I'm actually 
I've never even heard of me. I don't. I've only read like parts of Creep, but like there's have superpowers. Do they actually fight anybody? Yeah, they they fight. Not like. I think I've only read the first issue. Sorry. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> it's not like that came out like five years ago, Rob. It's I fine. know. Well, I still have like your crush the patriarchy thing hanging up, and I still have um. <laughs> Like your little home thing, and I, I have a bunch of your things around. Just like I don't know why creep. Like I haven't really followed much, though I know I should. Like I have time I know, now, especially when I'm unemployed. But it's fine. I get it <laughs> because it's not for like I don't know. I don't expect my friends like to read it because it's for younger readers. So, huh. Um. But yeah, they fight people, not like violently. It's <laughs> a lot of like just kind of like fumbling around because like the villains aren't very good at what they do either <laughs> what kind of villains are they um there's a guy with a mech suit there's like a cat burglar who dresses like a cat and likes to steal like fashion stuff um her name is glamour puss <laughs> uh there was a guy called lord of chaos who is like really bad at his job because <laughs> anybody who calls themselves Lord of Chaos is not going to be. I feel like there's a better example than like Venture Brothers for kids, but <laughs> um, I can kind of, I can kind of feel that. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like there's other things though for kids though, where the villains are like just all sort of bumbling. I think, yeah, a lot of kids um, media kind of does that. Like they make these lovable bumbling villains, like, Kind of like Powerpuff Team Girls. Rocket from Pokemon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Powerpuff Girls, they're not. Their villains are kind of... Well, like, no, Mojo Jojo, like, wants to kill people, I'm pretty sure. Oh, he does, but he's also a failure. Or, like, Adventure Time, too. Like, they make... Yeah. They, do you, like, empathize with the villains like they do? Um, yeah, I try to, like, make everybody have a motivation that makes sense to them. I don't like when it's just, like, my goal is world domination. It's like, why, though? Yeah. Mm. And you don't sort of slip in anything about, like, them being opposed to their any of the other people's existence or anything. You just try to keep it, like, as if, like, a bit of escapism that's representative of them still. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, um, there's not really any sort of uh, deeper themes going on at the moment. <laughs> cool. No, I like that. <laughs> That's why I wanted to talk to you, because I think that's interesting. Um, yeah, because I'm sure, especially like Sarah Century, the uh, uh, queer multimedia artist is going to be talking to a lot of people that are just going to be like really angry and like really frustrated and like really into just like t dismantling the system and everything. So I don't want to seem like I'm not. No. Angry. No, I, I know. I don't. I don't think you come across <laughs> yeah. that way. Um, I. I think it is interesting. Yeah, like obviously, when everything sucks, like you do, kind of want to get away from it at the same time. And having something that is diverse and represents you is not just like more white people escapism, <laughs> like straight white people in space or anything. Um, well, I also just remember, like especially when I was a kid, whenever I wanted to watch something that had queer people in it especially queer women they always died at the end <laughs> that's something i talk about all the time with uh yeah other queer women friends <laughs> um like even black mirror they fucking die at the end <laughs> they died 
happy though. I know, but it's still it's like <laughs> like every I I guess like the new Park Chan Wook film with the queer girls, they don't die. But like every other queer love story is like fatalistic and it's really depressing. <laughs> yeah, I remember uh when I was watching that Black Mirror episode, I like the whole time I'm sitting there just like fingers like pursed in front of me, like waiting for yeah. the bad stuff to happen. I'm like, I know it's coming. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, like, it's right away, too. Like, as soon as you find out, oh, this one person's been in a coma since they were a teenager. And, <laughs> and of course, like, I thought the story was great, but it's like, of course, like, one of them is having her lesbian awakening, finally. <laughs> as she's, like, about to marry a dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in virtual reality and in life. <laughs> And that was the same thing with the Park Chan-wook film, too. Is like, of course, more queer awakening in the art scene. We can't just have queer people that just are queer and continue to be queer and then don't die. <laughs> There's actually... Okay, this is silly. There's an anime I've been watching where the characters are just, like, gay and it's never brought up, and I kind of love it. Is it a... Yuri on Ice. Oh, what is it? It's an ice skating um, anime about two male ice skaters. Really? I want to see yeah. this now. <laughs> it's still going on. It's on, like, episode seven right now. Okay, so it's newer. Because, like, I've watched, like, Utna, uh, you know, uh, Revolutionary Girl. Yeah. yeah, very obviously queer. And then the movie's even more queer, where it ends with just, like, naked cuddling. <laughs> um, uh, uh, Monica Magica is fairly queer that was still like hidden and Nana like really flirts with queer themes, but that's interesting. So this show like actually has them like kissing or something or like, yeah, they kissed and like, there's no episode where like they have to like dramatically admit that they're gay. It's just like they kissed and like some people were a little bit shocked, but (laughs) like it wasn't like the point of the story, which I don't know. I'm tired of, like, Batman origin stories and, like, coming out stories. Yeah. I never even thought about queer origin stories in the context of superhero origin stories, but everything now is origin stories, I guess. Yeah. We have to learn to call everything. like, how did I become gay? Yeah. How did I become gay? Yeah. <laughs> well, cool. I was bit by a gay spider, and here I am. There is none of that in Creep, right? Mm-mm. Okay. No flashback to the queer spiders. No. <laughs> um. Yeah, it's depressing. Like all the queer stories now that we everybody loves too. Like even Adventure Time, like it's all just hinted at still. <laughs> it's uh, what's her name? The Vampire Lady and the Bubblegum. Celine, the Vampire Queen, yeah. and Princess. Them, yeah yeah and it's been like the creators have said that it's canon but uh but they still don't do it don't... <laughs> yeah <laughs> there was um the first like like gay um cartoon couple earlier like really early this year i think was it on steven um, universe or it something? was like it was someone, well, no, because Steven Universe, they're aliens, so somehow that doesn't count. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> well, no, because they're always, like, talking about, like, how their bodies are, like, a 
projection of light or something. Is there like Spinoza queers or something? <laughs> <laughs> They're just like magic alien gays, so okay. it's not real. But, <laughs> but no, like the first like human couple that was gay was um this kid's parents on the show Clarence. Oh. Oh wait, no, I'm thinking of a live action show where the one kid had two moms. Yeah, I think Disney Channel did have a character that had two moms, but now there's like a cartoon character who has two moms. Okay. Even like adult cartoons for the most part, like it's very jokey and it's like never like really like uh, the one character in Adventure Brothers, the monk character is like a, a gay character, but like it's still sort of like never explicitly stated, even though he's like constantly flirting with men and everything. It's really... Yeah, I feel like adult cartoons play it for laughs a lot, yeah. which is, like, I thought we were over that, but... It'll be interesting I, to see what happens now, though. <laughs> well, I mean, Adult Swim is, uh, like, going all all right, just like the White House. Is it really? Yeah, they have an all, an all right show now. What is it? I forget, I think, I forget what it's called, but... It's, it's like, not stupid. ironic? No, I'm pretty sure it's legit. What the fuck? <laughs> well, I mean, they've been, like, pretty sucky this year. Like, people called them out on not having, like, female creators. Yeah. And they were like, like that's because women aren't funny. <laughs> right. Oh, it's also like they don't fit into the atmosphere sort of thing. Yeah. Ugh. I need to look into that. I know. Fuck. Losing adult swim is, like, <laughs> really losing the mainstream equivalent of the underground. <laughs> I mean, because, like, they're sort of responsible for, like, so much of the aesthetic now in the mainstream, like, because of Tim and Eric and everything. Like, they've, like, really changed the way a lot of humor operates now. So to lose them, that's kind of fucking depressing. <laughs> that doesn't bode well for the next four years. Well, the sucky thing is I don't think a lot of creators agree with it. Like, obviously, a lot of the Adult Swim creators are pretty liberal. Um yeah. And some of them have spoken out against it, but about also, the, like, that's where you're getting your paycheck from. What are you going to do? About the women thing or the alt-right thing? About both. Really? Okay. Yeah. Uh, how, I didn't think I was going to end this more depressed than I started. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, well. At least you're still doing your thing. How's Tumblr yeah. doing? Like, I don't, like, Tumblr's, like, its own universe that, like, I'm just not... I haven't been as involved in Tumblr um, <laughs> recently just because I'm doing more comic stuff. And um, usually the stuff that does well on Tumblr is like standalone illustrations because like they're more rebloggable. Or yeah. like, I guess they like comics that are like um, like four panel, like funny gag comics, which I don't really. Right, like one-liners pretty much. Yeah. I'm not punny. <laughs> Um, but yeah, Tumblr's doing good, I think. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see how all of the internet shifts in the next four years. I don't know. Yeah, it's going to be weird. Yeah. Well, uh, cool. Do you have anything else to add or anything? I don't know. Is that what you wanted for the <laughs> yes. interview. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about like how you're reacting to it and like how your art's reacting to it and just how it 
Yeah, I don't know. I think that the artists, like, I do want to talk about how I feel like the comics community has been reacting to it, which is, like, everybody's being really super supportive of each other recently. Um, And, I mean, generally, like, comic artists, like, not all of us, I guess, but, like, the ones that I associate with have been, like, a pretty tight-knit group. Like, you know, like, even if you just, like, know someone from Twitter, like, if they came to you for help, like, you'd help them. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, like, I've had people ask me, like, hey, are you okay? Like, do you need anything right now? Like, is there anything, like, you want to talk about? And I think that, I don't know, tragedy brings people together, not to be, like, (laughs) dramatic. But, uh, I don't know. I think that. I've seen a lot of good in people since um, the Trump announcement. So you're feeling pretty optimistic? Generally. (laughs) (laughs) Generally a fair statement, but yeah. Um, I mean, I'm really worried about a lot of things. Um, But about the human condition, I'm not worried Hmm. if that makes sense love trump's hate if you will oh my gosh (laughs) i mean that'd be cool (laughs) (laughs) no i i think that uh in a lot of ways it does (laughs) apparently not not when it comes to like the polls Yeah. (laughs) yeah well we tried we'll try again yeah Warren? Warren? Oh, yeah. I mean, her and Sanders are on the uh, the minority committee now or something in the Congress or Senate or whatever. So there's that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I like that your glasses okay. match your hair. Thank you. I didn't do that on purpose, but really? I'm rolling with it. <laughs> I mean, I assume you just like purple then, I guess. I, yeah, I do. My winter coat is purple, too. Like, everything I own is purple. And someone was like, why would you dye your hair the color of, like, all of your clothes? And I'm like, so because matches. I don't plan things. <laughs> that sounds like very good planning. It's okay. I look, yeah, I look like a cartoon now, which yeah, is... You look like one of your drawings of yourself. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for talking to me. Yeah, it was good to talk to you. Yeah. I hope that all of your other interviews go well. Yeah, we'll see. (laughs)